You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, that we might now hold fast to our confession in Jesus Christ and boast of the gospel, the good news of your Son. Amen. Uh, well, we're in, I think, our third week now uh, through Hebrews, and we've heard about how God speaks, how God has spoken as the letter begins of old through the prophets and now through his Son and uh, the message of how the Son, is who is Jesus Christ, is greater than all things. First of all, we heard that he's greater than even the angels. And last week we heard about how he is the great high priest and uh, he has conquered Satan. And today we go into chapter 3 where we see that um, not only is Jesus greater than uh, the angels, uh, that his word and his work are ultimate, uh, he's also greater than Moses. And uh, before we get into what all that means, I think it's helpful to just sort of imagine what's going on here. Hebrews is a sort of letter that at first when you're reading it, it's hard, you, you can sort of get in the, lost in the weeds of all the theology and uh, the references to the Old Testament, that it's hard to see the story of what's going on here, who the author to the Hebrews uh, might have been and who the Hebrews themselves might have been as a congregation. And as I said uh, a couple weeks ago, that he's writing to folks who are probably Jewish converts to become followers of Jesus Christ. And so let's imagine the sort of situation that the Hebrews are in. And remember that they're, they're converts from Judaism, but they're also experiencing persecution probably. They're pressed by their society that's around them because of their new identity as disciples of Jesus Christ. And because they're facing this uh, pressure from probably from the, the surrounding Jewish society, some are beginning to return to the Jewish ritual system and uh, beliefs of their former Jewish religion and identity. And apparently uh, they, they haven't fully returned. They're still in name at least followers of Jesus Christ, but they have a sort of merging of beliefs of this new identity as Christians and their former identity as Jewish. And so their, their faith in Jesus Christ, as the author of Hebrews sees, is now uh, vulnerable. It's at risk of becoming nominal, that means in name only, and actually even worse than that, sort of synergistic, meaning a combination, a sort of hybrid version of Christianity and Judaism combined together. Um, it's a mingling of two different worldviews. So they're paying lip service at least to Jesus, but behaving like he's not enough, that ultimately Jesus Christ is not enough and that more is needed. We need a souped-up version of Christianity uh, that's uh, going back to the, the old ways and the old beliefs and the old identities, the old religion. And so for this reason, now there's a sort of fork in the road. There's a fork in the road. And a lot of uh, this has to do with their perceived safety and fear of what might come their way. Either they'll sort of slip into this hybrid uh, Jewish Christianity and be safe in society, at least seemingly safe, 
Or on the other hand, uh, they'll be for Jesus Christ alone, which might bring about more persecution. By standing firm and holding fast to the confession, they might indeed suffer. Some of them might even die for uh, standing up for their belief uh, and their trust in Jesus. And so this is where the author uh, of Hebrews steps in. It's at this uh, place that the author of the Hebrews steps in to either preach this sermon or write this letter or write this sermonic letter to them. That's the, the sort of context, the purpose for him writing. And he has two uh, aims overall in his letter that we've talked about before, uh, both of which we see in our passage today. It's to remind them of who Jesus Christ is. This is if, you people, if you'll hear people talk about the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's reminding them of, who, first of all, who Jesus is and what he's done, who, who he is, his person and work. And the second thing, the second overall aim of the letter, first of all, remember, he's reminding them of who Jesus is. And second of all, to get them to live their lives in accord with this belief, that their lives might be impacted actually by this message and not just lip service or a distraction by something else that's uh, in their surrounding society. Uh, and um, so he invites them at this point to take a big risk. He's asking them to take a big risk, to, to step out, to do the right thing, to have trust, which is the way that we should think about when we use the word faith. Trust, I think, is a better word. It's closer to the Greek word, to trust in the, in the belief that we have in who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. He's asking them to take a risk, uh, to, to stand behind this message and to, leave behind, and to leave behind what they've known, including their native religion, and to have full confidence in Jesus Christ alone to the exclusion of any other hope in the world, whether it's Judaism, some derivative of it, or anything else, to have ultimate faith in Jesus Christ answering all the concerns of this life. And so in our passage, uh, it's a, there, this invitation to follow Jesus Christ alone means abandoning old views of Moses, is what he's picking at here in these few verses, to abandon old views of Moses, now, Moses was perhaps uh, the most revered man in Judaism, perhaps still is. And what Moses did uh, beyond leading the exodus out of Egypt, what Moses did was to bring the law to Israel. And Moses, quote unquote, often you'll see this in the New Testament, Moses, that word becomes sort of synony synonymous with the old covenant that people would even just say Moses to, to mean all, that the, the, all the laws of the whole ritual system, conflated by the idea of Moses, what he taught them. But the author of the Hebrews doesn't say that they must abandon uh, Moses, just the old views of him. Not to abandon him altogether, but old views of him. Indeed, Moses was a servant sent by God, but he was not the final word. He's not the final word. He pointed Israel to the truth as a prophet. And we see that today in our passage in verse 5. The author of Hebrews says, He, Moses, was testifying to the things that were to be spoken of later. He's a sort of uh, precursor, a foreshadow, a pointing to something to come. I mean, compare this to the very first verse of the book that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, including Moses. Uh, God used 
folks like Moses in the past to speak a, a word to, to Israel that wasn't entirely complete. So they need to abandon the hope and safety they have in Moses, quote-unquote, and all that means, and conflating that idea with Judaism. Uh, meaning that they need to abandon any hope that they might have in any sort of ritual system. A ritual system with priests and sacrifices that were mere foreshadows of Jesus Christ. So what we find, if we look uh, closely, is that this passage actually isn't about Moses primarily. That's why I keep harping on this. We can get really distracted by those headings that all the Bibles put in there. I forget what it is here today, but it probably says something about Moses, and that's kind of sort of right. But that can be a distraction. Moses is like John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist who said, I must decrease so that Jesus Christ might increase. He's doing something very similar in terms of pointing to Jesus. And here's a, a very important verse in our passage today. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. So indeed, abandoning the old views of Moses isn't to denigrate Moses, it's to be realistic about what his role was, but that Christ is greater, and anything that he did or ushered in is greater than anything that Moses did, which was a foreshadow. So the main point of this passage is actually that the Hebrews are all collectively members of the household of God, which is ruled by his son. So not only is Jesus uh, uh, the greater prophet, or this passage says, isn't that interesting, he calls Jesus an apostle sent by God. Not only is he that, not only is he the great prophet, he's also their king, the son ruling over the household. And this news of uh, residency in the king's household has tremendous implications. To be a resident of this king's household has tremendous implications. Being a resident in this household cannot be in name only. We can't get too comfortable here and just sit in our socks by the fire. It's an actual fact, which places a call on the lives of its residents. And part of the implications of this household involve uh, taking a big risk, taking, uh, stepping out. This is what Jesus Christ was explaining when he said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is not a conditional statement. It's uh, in indicative, which is fancy for it is what it is. I mean, Jesus Christ is saying that being a disciple, uh, of a follower of him, inevitably means taking up one's cross. It inevitably involves suffering. It inevitably revolves risk. It inevitably revolves, involves things that, we, that are going to be very uncomfortable for us. And what they will find, though, is that when they finally pay the cost of discipleship, as this uh, passage is often uh, headed as, it's uh, at this moment they actually come alive. That when one takes the risk to follow Jesus, to take up one's cross, and all that involves, it's at that moment that one finally comes alive in new ways. So there's no need to fear any of the pressure 
from the surrounding society, from their family members, from the possibility of martyrdom, whether that's even to the point of death, or whatever it is that might come their way. This is because Jesus Christ is not only their apostle or their prophet, and not only that, but not only their, uh, just their king, he's also their high priest, as we learned in chapter 2 which means that they have been rescued by him, rescued from death and any of the concerns of this world and any onslaughts that the devil might uh, throw their way. Therefore, they're free to live openly now as followers of Jesus Christ, no matter what the pressures are. And the final implication of this uh, new freedom of discipleship is based on who they are as a community, not just as individuals. If we continue looking at the passage to the final verse, it says this, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. He's describing that the, the true church has two marks here, faith and proclamation. Faith, the words here are confidence and hope. And proclamation here is interesting, boasting that the community of Jesus Christ is going to be known by not only confidence and hope, but boasting in the message of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Uh, and this was the problem from the beginning, remember. If we go back to what I said at the very beginning of this sermon, um, that the Hebrew church was not holding fast to faith in Jesus Christ. They're beginning to hold on to other things, or maybe hold Jesus in one hand and, and many other things in the other hand. And thus, they're not actually boasting of Jesus Christ. And this boasting isn't a sort of lame response to the folks that are bullying them in their society. Rather, this boasting is so that those who are, who are giving the pressure might also hear the good news of Jesus Christ and become followers of him as well. How else will they hear of the good news unless someone preaches to them, even those who are bringing about the pain? I recently read a memoir by a young man named, whose name was Nabil Qureshi. He just died in the fall. Um, he was working for Ravi Zacharias ministry, um, but he is a convert from Islam to Christianity. He grew up here in the United States, mostly. His father was in the, in the military, but he grew up mostly here in the United States. But uh, a Muslim, uh, born and raised, of uh, immigrants from Pakistan. And so his whole identity was wrapped up in Islam. I mean, not just a, a, a faith or a religion, but a whole identity, a whole being and way of life. And he goes to college, and there, probably one of the first days of college, he meets his new best friend, uh, another young man named David, who challenges Nabil. David is a Christian, and he's well studied in Christianity. And uh, they strike up a, a, a friendship for, for years, they're best friends. But when, somewhere along the line, he challenges Nabil. They have a ton of religious conversations, and he says this. He says to, David says to Nabil, if Christianity were true, and it meant you had to give up everything to follow God, would you want to know the truth? 
And that question sends him on a three-year-long tailspin where they engage in friendly research and debates about Christianity. And during the process, his own uh, Muslim faith and identity becomes challenged. And through this, he starts to consider Jesus Christ more seriously. It's not easy because the thing that's holding him back, he says, is that he might destroy his family, is the way he puts it. That if he puts his trust in Jesus, this is going to tear his family apart that he's giving up everything, uh, everything that he's known, including those he loves the most. And eventually he does come to faith in Jesus, and his family pretty much all but disowns him. But it's at this very point he describes his conversion, and his conversion, he's, he's racked with emotion, crying, kneeling on the floor against his bed, and the thing that's holding him back is his... Uh, a sense of disloyalty to his family. And then there he, he admits his faith in Jesus and he stands up emotionally. He's like in his apartment. He's in medical school and he looks out on the street and this is what he says in his memoir. It's a little bit long-ish. Bear with me because I think it's worth reading all, all of what I'm about to read. He says, Then I saw something that I had seen countless times before. Remember, this is right after he converts. Then I saw something that I had seen countless times before, a man walking down the sidewalk toward the medical school. But that was not all I saw. Though I had no idea who this man was, I knew he had a dramatic story, replete with personal struggles, broken relationships, and splintered self-worth. Taught by the world that he was an outcome of blind evolution, he subconsciously valued himself as exactly that, a byproduct of random chance, with no purpose, no hope, no meaning except what pleasures he could extract out of the day. Chasing these pleasures resulted in guilt and pain, which caused him to chase more pleasure, which led to more guilt and more pain, bearing it all just beneath the surface. He went about his day with no clue how to break the cycle, how to find true hope. What I saw was a man who needed to know that God could rescue him, that God had rescued him, this man needed to know about God and his power. Did he know? Did he know that God loved him uh, from the foundation of the earth with a power far exceeding the immensity of the cosmos? He turned all his attention to creating that man and declared, you are my child, I love you. Did he know that God made him exactly how he wanted, knowing each hair on his head and each second of his life? God knew full well that the hands he gave to this man would be used to sin against him, that the feet he gave to this man would be used to walk away from him. Yet instead of withholding these gifts, he gave him the most precious gift of all, his own son. Did he know that God entered into this world to suffer in his stead, received with slaps and fists by the very people who came to, he came to save? He was scourged until his skin fell off in ribbons, only to be pierced through both arms and feet, nailed naked on the wood for all the ridicule. He scraped his skinless back on splintered wood with each rasping breath, his last breath finishing the task of rescuing us, securing our eternity with him. Did he know? Of course not. We have to tell him. While I was wallowing in self-pity, focused on myself, there was a whole world with literally billions who had no idea who God is, how amazing he is, 
and the wonders he has done for us. They are the ones who are really suffering. They don't know his hope, his peace, and his love that transcends all understanding. They don't know the message of the gospel. Well, unlike uh, the Hebrews, it's probably not Moses, quote-unquote, that we're in danger of venerating. Rather, in this 21st century world, I mean, just as Nabil Qureshi describes in that passage, it's probably someone or something else. Maybe it's actually ourselves. We're in danger of looking for answers, often the, the cliche that everybody tells us, to, to what? To look inside of yourself, everybody's saying. Or somewhere else, at least. Or there's some contemporary ritual. Whatever it is for you. <coughs> the reason uh, we use these uh, different rituals and products is that we're worried. Excuse me. Often our fears are related to other people. I've been telling people lately that stress isn't about work. It's about what other people are expecting of us. And that often the way that we're leading our lives is just like the Hebrews who are feeling the pressure from other people around us that are expecting us to live a certain way. And what do bullies do? They mock or beat people up who stand out, who don't conform. They're wanting conformity and uniformity to the way that they think the world should work. But what if the bullies and all the changing fads of this life in our generation are wrong? What if all of these voices are wrong? Where are you looking for answers? Are you even asking the right questions? Where is your hope? Is it in Jesus Christ? or something else, or some hybrid of Christianity. As our passage says, consider Jesus, and he'll repeat this several times in Hebrews, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Not only that, but we are his house. And also hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And so friends, let's, let's not just keep this message to ourselves. But let's be marked as a church by a confidence in this hope and a boasting, so much confidence that it overflows from us to boast of it, not as a sort of na-na-na-na-na-na, but that we have good news of the, the greatest thing, the greatest person in the world, that we can't help but to share it. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.